First Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're starting. Stay here most of the day, First Corinthians chapter 15. It's the chapter that deals with the subject of the resurrection. In the last couple of Sundays, we've been talking about themes like how does the Bible describe eternity? How does the Bible describe that day when Jesus appears? Today, we're going to describe what I will call the great change. What happens to these mortal bodies? How many want something to happen to your mortal body? (laughs) Chapter 15 and verse 35, Paul is answering some critics who have trouble with some things of his gospel. In the church at Corinth, perhaps due to their background of Greek philosophy and Greek influence, really did not have a lot of respect for the human body. They really did not. For those who had been filled with the Holy Spirit and already spoke with tongues of angels, they thought they had already arrived at some sort of angelic state already, and they were just longing for the day when they would be rid of their bodies. And that kind of theology that was in the Corinthian church with such disrespect to the body had a variety of consequences. There were those who say since the body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do with it, so go ahead and indulge in every lust possible because it's of no significance anyway. And there was another extreme asceticism that since the body doesn't count, you're to deny it at all costs in every situation. And, and both of those camps were in the Corinthian church. And there was great disrespect for the body. And a lot in the Corinthian church just looked for the day when they would die and they would be rid of their body. End of story. Except Paul says it's not the end of the story. And in verse 35, he answers some of his critics And it says, but some man will say, there's some in your midst when it comes to this doctrine of the resurrection. How are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? And I want to draw a variety of themes together uh, to set the context for what Paul is about to teach us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First of all, Let's go to the subject of creation. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? And there is a truth I've been hinting at and will continue to hint at, that the destiny of creation is bound together with the destiny of man. When man sinned, according to Romans chapter 8, all creation also fell into disarray. At the end of the story, when man is glorified, when there's the redemption of the body, creation will be restored to glory as well. At the end of the story is glory. I don't know if I ever told you that. But the end of the story is a renewed creation. A new heavens and a new earth 
Creation is God the Father's gift to His Son. The Bible says all things were made for Him. Christ is the heir of all things. He's the head of all things. And Creation started out as a natural creation, but it ends as a glorified reality. It's not just you and I who are glorified, but the heavens and the earth are also glorified at the appearing of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, He's come to take possession of His inheritance. Amen. He's come to take possession of His inheritance, and that includes the heavens, and that includes the earth, and whatever history the heavens and the earth have gone through, there's great news. When Jesus appears, it's all radically transformed. Amen. New heavens, new earth, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, Ephesians 1.10 says, He will gather together all things in Christ, both in heaven and in earth, all gathered. He's going to glorify the whole shooting match. I don't know if you know that phrase here, do you? He's going to glorify the whole thing. And that's important for us to recognize that the eternal state consists of a renewed and incorruptible heaven and an earth. Which means this, you and I don't exist simply as floating spirits somewhere out there in some hazy zone that we can't put a finger on. But there's a new heavens, there's a new earth. Heaven comes down to the earth as the ultimate reality. The heavens and earth don't cease to exist. They will be transformed at the appearing of Christ. It's His inheritance, and He's come to glorify Himself in the creation. That's part of the story. That's how your Bible ends. That is our hope. It's the hope of the Old Testament. Isaiah says a couple of times, I make a new heavens and a new earth and the former won't even be remembered. And according to Second Peter 3.13, we have this promise and we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That is our hope. That is our, our goal. So creation is looking forward to the day even if you and I aren't. Creation is looking forward to the day. But from a second perspective, it's also the end of our salvation story. If we could take the time to read all of 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll dabble in verses here and there this morning, but especially verses 1 to 28, you have a definition of what the gospel is, a complete gospel. If you read through it all, the first 28 verses, you get the contents, the basic contents of the gospel, which is this, the death of Jesus for our sins. That's got to be preached. His burial has got to be preached. Even though, and have you ever, ever heard a sermon on the burial of Jesus? Have you ever heard a sermon on the burial of Jesus? Or just the fact that he was buried? It's part of the gospel. His burial is part of the gospel. His resurrection is part of the gospel. But the, the way Paul describes the resurrection, he uses the word Christ, the first fruits. And this theme of the resurrection is continually developed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the idea is this, that the story of the resurrection is not complete until you and I, as believers in Christ Jesus, are also physically resurrected. He's the first fruits, and our bodily resurrection is the harvest. And the story of resurrection and salvation is not complete until the resurrection of the body of the believer. 
And when that happens, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the kingdom triumphs over all as death is destroyed. And if our preaching of the gospel is only the forgiveness of sins, but we do not include the defeat of death at the resurrection of the believer, we are presenting an incomplete gospel and possibly misleading people as to what eternity would be like. And so this whole thing, uh, there's two perspectives here. His appearing completes the salvation of us with the resurrection of our bodies. And at the same time, Christ has come to take possession of his inheritance, glorifies that whole creation, and you and I are joint heirs together with him, and we participate in the fullness of his inheritance. Sounds good, doesn't it? Now the fact is, the resurrection of the body is absolutely necessary to finish the story. It's part of the gospel that we are to preach. It's not just going to heaven when we die, but it's also coming back and getting our bodies resurrected. Because if we, the body is not resurrected, the fact is this, death has not been defeated. Without the resurrection of our bodies, death has not been defeated. And to finish the gospel, we've got to defeat death, and therefore the resurrection of the believer is part and parcel of our gospel preaching. Having said that, then we ask this question. Simple questions, but let's quickly review them anyway. How does the Bible describe physical death? What is death? When somebody dies, when a believer dies, what happens? Simply stated, it's the reversal of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. In Genesis 2 and verse 7, when God created man, it says, He formed man out of the dust of the ground. But as the body would have been there, but it was inanimated, there was no life in it. And it says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It was the breath of God going into the man that gave his body life. What death is, is simply the life coming out of that body. Death is simply the dismissal of that spirit out of man. Uh, you have a definition of it in James chapter 2 and verse 26, where it says, as the body without the spirit is dead. Very simple. It's just the withdrawal of the spirit from the body is dead. When Jesus died on the cross, remember his words, Luke 23, 46, his words were this, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the Bible says, old King James Bible, he gave up the ghost. Do you remember when Stephen was being martyred in Acts chapter 7 and they were throwing stones on him and his life was ebbing out of his body? He prays with these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He recognized the spirit was departing out of his body. Remember in the, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, according to Luke's version of the story, when she was raised from the dead, it says her spirit came back. Her spirit returned to her. Or, as we have the definition, you can find it in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 that says these words. The dust shall return to the earth as it was, and the spirit return to God who gave it. That's what happens at physical death according to the scripture. If you're familiar with Reformed theology, the Westminster Confession 
which is widely accepted, um, simply says this about death. The definition they put down are these words. The body returns to dust and sees corruption. The soul neither sleeps nor dies, but ascends to God. The righteous are received by God and they wait and rest for the redemption of their bodies. The wicked go to torment as they wait for final judgment. And that's the statement of the Westminster Confession when they want to give a biblical definition of what happens at death. Widely accepted by most evangelicals. Now, it's a question of curiosity. This, this is not a biblical phrase, but we use this phrase to describe something. If I talk about what's called the intermediate state, what am I referring to? What I'm referring to, what, what people mean when they use that phrase, is what's it like between the death, physical death, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, but you don't have a resurrected body, and you're still waiting for the resurrection of the body. That's called the intermediate state. What is, what is life like in that state? You think we would know. But the actual truth is this, except for a very few hints, the Bible is very, very silent on that question of what it is like. There is far more attention in Scripture to what life is like after your body is resurrected. There's not a lot in Scripture to describe what life is like when you're a disembodied spirit waiting for the resurrection of the body. There's just not a lot in your Bible that describes that. But there are a few hints, and here's some of the, the more common verses that people would immediately think of to describe what it's like to die. Second uh, Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or Philippians 1, verses 21 and 23, where Paul is in prison and he realizes that there is a chance of him being executed. And he's pondering this idea of, of being physically executed. And he says, well, this is really not all a bad idea. Because from his perspective, to die is gain. I'm not a loss. To die is gain. And he says, uh, to depart is to be with Christ. Or Hebrews 12 and verse 23 would talk about you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. And outside of a few verses like that, and there's a debate about whether there's a soul sleep or not, the fact is that these verses that I just quoted don't describe your final destination. As nice as they are, and as comforting as they are, those verses don't describe the end of the story. They describe what it's like between your death and the appearing of Jesus. All right? The afterlife, I believe, is a state of consciousness. Both the believer and the unbeliever are conscious of where they are after they die. I do believe that. Uh, in Luke 16, you get the story of the rich man who died and unfortunately went to the wrong place. And it says, in being in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and he could see. He was very aware of his surroundings, very knowledgeable exactly where he was. Um, 
most evangelicals believe in consciousness after death. It's usually those who talk about soul sleep as if there's no existence after you die, no consciousness. Usually it's the cults that would embrace that kind of teaching. And there are a small minority of evangelicals that would deny consciousness after death. But I'm not going to take that topic any further because it's going to get me away from the resurrection. But when we die, we're in the presence of the Lord, but that's not the end of your story. Your salvation is not finished when you die and go to be with the Lord. It's abundantly clear, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5, and read this with me, and we'll, we'll read it. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. It's abundantly clear that um, the state of the believer between death and resurrection is incomplete. It's not the final glory. The idea of being a bodiless spirit means you fail to come, and you, you come short of the glory of God. You come short of the glory of God. The phrase that Paul is going to use in 2 Corinthians 5 is to have a spirit that's not clothed in the body is to be naked. 2 Corinthians 5, 1-5, where he talks about his present body as a tent. It says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. That's the resurrection body to come. It's that we're looking forward to an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, in this present tent, this present body, we are groaning. We long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened because we don't wish to be unclothed, but we wish to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far greater, Paul says, than living in this world. But it's not the end of the story. Paul says, I don't want to spend eternity as a bodiless spirit. And so that's being naked. That is not right. What I want is to be clothed with immortality. That's the point that he is making here. So he talks about our present body. He uses the word a tent. Our present body, and everybody here knows the truth of this, is inadequate. Is that not correct? Our present body is inadequate. How many know that your body won't let you express all the desires of your heart? How many know you groan? How many know you get tired? How many know you just wish you had more energy? 
How many knows that you'll never be able to execute to the fullness everything that's in your heart, in your spirit, and in your soul because you have physical limitations? We experience weariness. Paul says we groan under a sense of burden. Corruption is creeping in on our human bodies. It's making itself known. It's a tent that frays. It's a tent that rips. It's a tent that only is good for so long and then it's wore out. But you and I are looking for a different body, a building of God not made with hands. For repetition's sake, death has not been defeated if our spirit is not clothed with a glorious body that cannot be die. Death has to be swallowed up in life, and that's going to take the resurrected body to show the victory of our salvation. So at the resurrection, what happens is that our departed spirits will be reunited with transformed bodies to make us complete again so we're not going to be unclothed. But we're going to have an existence on a higher level than we have ever imagined or we have ever experienced. We're going to spend eternity in a glorified reconstitution of the heavens and the earth, the inheritance of the sun, and our bodies are going to be reconstituted to live in such an environment. There has to be a change in our bodies. And there will be. And I go, thank God for that. Amen. So when, when Paul deals with these kinds of things, and he's got these objections from the Corinthians, the question is this. So what's this resurrection body going to be like? And answering the question, he wants you to note two things. The first thing, in some ways... Your future resurrected body is the same body that died. And also, in some ways, that future resurrected body is different from the body that dies. In some sense, there's continuity, and in another sense, there is discontinuity. Now, Paul deals a lot with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he's writing to people who think they are spiritual because they speak in tongues. Who think that they are spiritual because of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is certainly not against gifts of the Spirit, but he does want to bring correction to their proper use. But just because we speak in tongues and prophesy from time to time doesn't mean we're spiritual people. Because Paul would say to these believers who practice these spiritual gifts, are you not yet carnal? And he would warn them about their behavior. And he said, real spirituality is this, is living your life under the idea that Jesus is coming back and that there's going to be a resurrection of your body and you live in the light of your future, live in the light of eternity, when that controls your lifestyle, then you're walking in the Spirit. You can speak in tongues and not be walking in the Spirit. You can prophesy and not live your life according to the Spirit. Living by the Spirit means the future reality controls your lifestyle and that future reality is the resurrection of your body so you can participate in his inheritance when he comes to glorify creation as his inheritance. That's what it means, according to Paul, to live in the Spirit. So, in what sense is the body the same? Because you're going to say, boy, I don't want the same body that was... What does that mean? 
What does that mean? To answer that question, Paul in this chapter is going to use an analogy, a picture, with which everybody is already familiar. And that is, he uses the analogy of a seed. A seed that you plant into the ground. A seed is a living thing. But through death, the seed will assume another form of existence. That's the nature. God has already built this into nature for us. And our body is like a seed. It has, it's alive and it has an existence. But when it dies, it comes out of death and it assumes another type of existence. It's sown one way, but it's raised another. In other words, in nature, God has already given us proof that something can have one, more than one form of existence. Your body will have more than one form of existence. It will. Now, the, when we use the word body, Paul wants to enlarge our definition of the word body here. Is because when I talk about body, a lot of people just go flesh and blood. Well, but he would say, if you look into the heavens at night, you see heavenly bodies. The sun is a heavenly body, and it's not flesh and blood. The moon is a heavenly body, but it's not flesh and blood. And when we use the term body, it doesn't restrict itself to the meaning flesh and blood. There's different types of body. All body means, that word, it just means some sort of material existence. This human body, its material existence is flesh and blood. The, the body of the sun, I don't know what it's made of, a lot of gases or whatever. The body of the moon is made out of rock. I mean, there's different types of bodies. Right now, our human body is the flesh and blood type. But at the resurrection, it's a different type because flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Different kinds of expression. Each body has its own kind of glory. The, the, the body called the sun, it gives light. This body called the moon doesn't give light, but it does reflect light. There's different types of glory, different types of body. Our human bodies right now, flesh and blood, but in the resurrection, they will have a different kind of expression. So the analogy of the seed gives us the thought of continuity. There is a preservation of identity. You, you, what grows out of that seed depends on what seed is going down. You can't sow wheat and expect to get an apple. It's going to be wheat. See, Stephen, when you go in the ground, you're not coming up Eugene. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're, you're just, you're going to, it's still going to be you. Your personality is going to be intact. You, 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 you don't lose that. So it's still you that is coming forward. So there's continuity. But then there's a lot of differences. Because when you put the seed in the body, how many know the plant that grows out of the seed looks nothing like the seed you put into the ground? Is that not correct? I mean, there's, it's the same seed, but it's the same life in a different form. Are we catching the point? It's the same life in a different form. But it's not a different life. But through death, it assumes another kind of existence. 
So it is with our human bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about verses 42 down to the end of the chapter, he's going to show the differences that are in the body. The biggest difference that he's going to say about this transformation of the human body is that it changes from corruption to incorruption. That's the big one. That's the one that dominates Paul's thinking. Goes down in corruption, but it's coming up in incorruption. That word corruption means it's subject to getting old, subject to decay, subject to breaking down. It's, in other words, it is perishable. But when it's raised, it will be raised in incorruption. And when he ends off this chapter, that's the big theme. It says this corruptible has to put on incorruption. And when this corruptible has put on incorruption, then that saying is fulfilled that, that death is swallowed up in victory. But that's the biggest change from corruption to incorruption. A second thing that he would take note of in verse 43 is that the natural body, it says, is sown like a seed in the ground in dishonor. That word dishonor means in humiliation. Doesn't look very good. Low estate. Not very impressive. No matter how they doll you up in that coffin. It's a humiliation. It's, it's a breakdown. It's the end of the road. It's not very magnificent. But here's the big change. When it comes out the other side in a new existence, it's sown in dishonor. Have you heard this word before? It's raised in glory. It's raised in glory. Philippians 3.21 puts it this way. That this old King James Bible says, our vile body. I don't know why they use that word, but the, Greek, the, the correct English translation is this body of our humiliation. Our, our, our humiliated body in the resurrection is going to be made just like Christ's resurrected body. You and I are called to glory, and you're going to get a body that can handle it. Amen. The third distinction found in verse 43, it says the natural body is sown in weakness. Now that word, Paul loves to use that word weakness, especially in 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. He would talk about being weak, physically challenged, physically weak. That word describes, is, is a description of our human bodies in this world. In other words, we lack strength. We are feeble. Our body is impotent. We just simply can't do everything we want to do. We have to come to grips with our ever-increasing limitations as we get older. We have to come to grips with it. It's, it's a body of weakness. But I've got good news for you. When it comes out the other end, it's sown in weakness. But Paul says it's raised in power. No limitations whatsoever. You come out with dynamic 
ability. Amen. Isn't that good news? That's good news. A fourth difference that Paul would say in chapter 1544 is that the present human body is body, right now, the constitution is flesh and blood. What that means is we have a body that is suited for this present time. And we can relate to natural creation. We relate to this natural earth. And as such, we have physical appetites. Our desire for food, sex drive in people. Now, I don't know what you think eternity is going to be like, but you're going to have neither appetite in the resurrected body. You don't need food. And that's disappointing for a lot of people, isn't it? Because we like it. We like it. But, you know, I obviously, on a Sunday morning, can't get into all the kinds of questions that I would raise. And people would say, what about the marriage supper of the Lamb? And, and we sit down at the great feast and so forth. And it sounds like a lot of eating and the tree of life and, and all the fruit thereof and all that. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Meats for the belly, belly for the meats, God will destroy them both. You won't need them. You have a different source of energy. But that's going to be another topic. I've got to leave you with questions hanging in your mind and so forth. But uh, the fact is, you're going to have a resurrected body that's going to bring you far more satisfaction than any earthly appetite could possibly give you. And that's just, let's leave, leave it hanging at that. Right now, it's a natural body of flesh and blood. But when it comes up the other end, it's raised a spiritual body that has a whole different set of appetites than what you and I would experience in our present body. When it says it's raised the spiritual body, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any material, but what it means is the body you get is a supernatural body. It doesn't mean that it's composed of spirit, but our new body is going to be adapted to eternity under the ultimate domination of the Spirit of God. The fifth thing difference between the two bodies is this. Uh, verses 53-54, our present body is mortal. But when it goes through death and comes out the other end at the resurrection, it's immortal, which means not subject to death. Raised to die no more. You see, people who were raised from the dead in, in the scriptures, Lazarus from the grave, the daughter of Jairus, the widow of Nain, her son, Old Testament stories of people being raised from the dead, that is not considered resurrection. That's just considered raised from the dead. They were just raised back to the same existence they had before. But at our resurrection, we're not raised back to the same existence. We are raised up into an entirely new existence of glory. Amen. Amen. Now, go with me to chapter 15. You're probably still there. And I just want to read verses 50 to 58. Um, where Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When Paul finishes his, his final words, bringing this epistle to a close, his last major theological theme is the resurrection to happen at the appearing of the Lord as the pinnacle experience for the believer. The summation of all that God has been doing. And he's got this ultimate sense of triumph. The fact is this, that resurrection has already been set in motion because nearly 2,000 years ago from where you and I sit, resurrection already started. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. I'll try that again. You might be excited about that. Resurrection has already been set in motion. I'm not looking for it to begin, but the news is this. The end has already begun. I'm not waiting for the end to begin. It's already begun. When God raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection was set in motion and the end has already been begun. Death is already demonstrated to be defeated. Sin can no longer impose its penalty on anyone. All that remains is our guaranteed resurrection at His appearing. It's already begun. And you need to catch the tone of voice and the spirit in which... when I mean, I could just read that and, you know, for you and I who have never experienced a lot of difficulty in life, it's nice doctrinal thoughts. Preach that in Rwanda where there's a million people died in a hundred days when their lives were taken from them by a machete. They don't sit still when they hear that death has been defeated. When they hear that death never gets the last word. When they hear there's a resurrection to come. I tell you, it gets responses. It gets responses. You know, you got to hear the spirit and the tone of that, that, that Paul is speaking. When he thinks of this future reality, he can't help himself. I mean, he's in a shout. I need to read this the way he feels feels it when he wrote it. He's shouting. He's in triumph. He is built up into a, a crescendo because from his own point of view, ever since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
It seems he had a partner that he didn't want. And death was always at his heels. Always taking jabs at him. Always trying to go after him. There have been plots on his life. He's lived under threats. He has known shipwrecks, stonings, beatings, imprisonments. A day and night in the deep. Traveled under the shadow of perils. Perils by the way. Perils in the city. Perils on the boats. Perils in the land. Perils. I mean, his whole life has just been constantly, he says, we've got the sentence of death in ourselves. But it seems that he is so delirious with victory. Oh, you know, that's something good to be delirious about. He is so delirious with victory because no matter what death is attempting to do to him, he knows that the reality is that the end has already begun. He knows that Jesus is raised from the dead and death never gets the final word. Never. So he would say to death, take your best shot at me. I win at the end of the story. I mean, he is so delirious with the sense of victory that he begins to taunt the enemy of death. <laughs> Try it again. Come on, take another shot, death. See what you can do to me. You just can't keep resurrection down. It's like he says to death, is that the best you can do to me? I mean, the guy is just incredibly overwhelmed with a sense of absolute victory. When the body decays... When the body's broken down, shows signs of perishing, corruptible, you know. He says, death, is, is that the best you can do to me? I will be raised incorruptible on guard. Take that. When his body is worn out, weak, exhausted, getting tired, lays in the grave in a state of humiliation, Paul says, is that the best you can do to me? On guard. Take that. I am raised in glory. When the body is constantly suffering weakness, he says, is that the best you can do? I'm raised in power, death. Take that. And he's just... He's just Overwhelmed with this sense of, of, of victory. He can say to the old grim reaper himself. The grim reaper leaves the whole world in bereavement. He says, look, Christ has already been raised from the dead. My destiny is tied to his resurrection. I have been forgiven life. You will never lower the final curtain in my existence. Never will you lower that final curtain. You never have the last word. Come on, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Death, you don't have any power. The end of the story is already written, and I too shall be raised. Death, you lose. Amen. Death, you lose. When Christ appears, it is the last Trump that's ever going to be sounded. He will personally descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the end of the end will arrive. He began the end with his resurrection. The end of the end happens with my resurrection and your 
resurrection. In that moment, it's interesting the word that Paul uses, the twinkling of an eye. In that moment, that minuscule portion of time that is so small that you can't divide it anymore. In less than the instantaneous blink of an eye, it's over. Boy, when he says, I come quickly, he means quick. I dare you to blink your eye. And he's a whole lot faster than that. It's incredibly quick. It's over. Death has to yield its prey over those that have been reduced to the dust of the earth. I like this. In the day when he comes, and he comes as judge, the judge of the whole earth will take a seat in the courts of eternity. And there's going to command go out to all eternity. All rise. <laughs> and the whole creation rises in resurrection power. Changed from one form of existence into another form of existence so that we can be his joint heirs with him in his inheritance we he finally receives from his Father. That's good stuff, man. No wonder God says, Hosea thirteen fourteen, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And then he says to death itself, I like this. Listen to how God himself speaks to death. Same verse, he says, O death, I will be your plague. <laughs> o grave, I will be your destruction. Folks, there's one final death that takes place at the resurrection, and it is the death of death. Death itself dies at the resurrection. Isaiah 25.8 assures us with these words, He will swallow up death in victory. That means the long and hard fight of faith is over. Trials will be no more. Glory is revealed. Victory. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's our future. No wonder for the believer, funerals, Yes, there's a natural mourning, of course there is. But it's never goodbye, it's good night. Get to see each other again. You may have trouble recognizing me in my glorified state, but you get to see me again. And and at Christian funerals. Yes, there is sadness. Because we're human still, of course. But we don't mourn like the world mourns. Absent from the body to be present with the Lord, but He's coming back. And death will yield its prey. That is our future. Hallelujah. God's good.